This episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by First Republic Bank. The world is changing and your needs are evolving. As your focus turns to what matters most to you and your community, First Republic remains committed to offering personalized financial solutions that fit your needs. From day one, you'll be connected with a dedicated banker who will serve as your primary point of contact throughout your relationship with the bank. They'll be there to listen to you, understand your values, and meet you on your financial journey. Your banker can offer solutions that support your goals at any stage. From setting up a personal checking account, to refinancing household debt, to buying a first home. As your needs evolve, you can call or email your banker at any time for the support you need. Because First Republic believes what matters to you matters most. Learn more at firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. You're listening to... You're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. I'm Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Rayu. And we're here today to talk about our October 2020 book club pick, Confessions by Kanae Minato, translated by Steven Snyder. And whew, Rira, you picked a you picked a doozy for Spooky Month 2020. It really was the perfect read for for Spooky Month, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, this episode should be released on Election Day 2020. How are you feeling, Rira, as we enter this potentially new era? Um, I've just been trying not to think about it. <laughs> I submitted my ballot a couple of days ago and I'm like, well, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it feels kind of hopeless, but you know, you're, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I feel you. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I don't want <laughs> like. When the results come out, I'm still skeptical on how much can change, um, how much damage control we can do. Yeah. Oh, oh well, at least we can still escape to our books. Um, as a resident alien from Canada, I'm counting on all you people to uh, to pull through for us. Oh, that's right. You can't vote because no. you're... Oh, wow. <laughs> I voted for the first time um, when I moved to California because I didn't become naturalized until I was like 21, 20. This is only like my second election because, okay. um, uh, because the last election, the first very first one I voted for was Trump versus Clinton. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, I was so disappointed <laughs> by, by the results. I know it was, it was my first election, my first vote, and I was like, "Wow, I feel like my vote didn't count." But, <laughs> uh, but that's democracy for you, right? <laughs> I mean, it did count. It just didn't count enough. Yeah, I know because of the electoral college or some bullshit. You know, like our international listeners are gonna just be so confused <laughs> no i think they understand also what's at stake here i mean everyone knows the situation that our country is in and yeah so um those of you listening in the future how is it over there 
I hope I hope it's um I hope it's not as bleak as it is now. Um but yeah. Um quick reminder that we're going to be talking about the whole of Confessions by Kanae Minato, so that includes spoilers. And since this book is kind of like a crime thriller, you definitely don't want to get spoiled before you get into it. So make sure you read the book before coming back and listening to our discussion. Yeah, I would put this in the same category as Never Let Me Go. <laughs> um, just go into it as cold as possible. Yeah. And, and then it, come back and listen to us. <laughs> and it's a pretty quick read. It's only about 235 pages. Um, for a novel, it's relatively short. So you can probably knock it out in a day or two and come back. Okay, so we're we're going to move on to our discussion. Yeah. Um Marvin, what have you heard about this book before because it, you know, it was an international bestseller. Um you know, it it was extremely popular in Japan. It sold millions of copies and there's a movie based on this book as well. Um so have you heard about this book before going in? I actually haven't. So this was my first time exposed to this um I guess you could call it source material. Um, I actually didn't know there was a film. Oh, yeah. Um, it's directed by Tetsuya Nakashima, who is a pretty well-known director. And it debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival back in 2010. Okay. And it got a lot of critical acclaim. So I, I have not watched the movie yet, but I am very interested in how they adapted it. Yeah, I mean, it is a form of story that is somewhat familiar in asian media tropes which is like the revenge story right like we've seen this before in like um like korean cinema um a lot of japanese like films anime manga um light novels also feature stories that like kind of focus on revenge right like the wrong party getting their justice um this is probably one of the darker ones of these that I've, I've read. Um, so a little bit about the author, Kanae Minato. Um, she started writing in her 30s and she and uh, Confessions is her debut novel. It came out in um, 2009, I believe, 2000, 2008. So it came out a, a long time ago in Japan, and it only got um, translated in like 2010. Um, and you know, she's won like a couple of like very prolific um, Japanese crime awards, and she was and she was a home economics teacher and a housewife. So uh, I. Actually, after I finished Confessions, I bought the only other English translated book of hers, which is Penance. And that also has um, that also has to do with revenge and uh, children and and uh, very similar themes. I don't know if all her other books are, are the same way, though. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't know. So. If anyone has read any of her other untranslated works, um, please let us know. But yeah, she's she's written a lot. There <laughs> there are over like twelve novels that she's written so far. So what are what are your overall impressions of Confessions, Rira? Um, I was so surprised by the format of this book. Um, I like going into it. I did not expect it to be first person. Uh, the first chapter, like, 
was definitely uh, the most impactful for me. Um, I think the first, I think the first chapter could easily be a standalone short story. Yeah, I mean, it is in a nutshell, like a self-contained revenge story in itself, right? And I do agree, it's written in a really interesting way, which is like, it's just a monologue given by um, the teacher, the main character, um, Yuko Moriguchi, um, to her class. And it was interesting that the author didn't write the responses from the students, but you can still kind of feel like what they're saying, right? Yeah, I actually heard that uh, Kanae Minato, like she used to be an aspiring screenwriter. So uh, after hearing that little bit of detail, I was like, wow, that makes sense because a lot of her uh, a lot of her writing is cinematic uh, with like the milk cartons. I, I was just like, I can picture that in my head. It's like it, everything is so visual, even though everything is being told through a monologue and you don't see uh, the students, you don't really hear their responses. It's um it's just the teacher talking. And I was really surprised by like how much tension uh, was, was present and how like meandering her resignation speech was, but how I could feel the dread building up. Yeah. Um, on that note, uh, speaking of milk cartons, what did you think about the whole milk subplot? Like this government program to get kids to drink milk. I wonder if that's a real thing. I think it's a real thing. Because hmm. I know that Korea had something similar. <laughs> so I can only imagine that Japan uh, did that as well. I think the government is very... In terms of like East Asian governments, they implement a lot of health programs. And a lot of the times they're mandatory. So so teachers really don't have much control yeah. on that kind of stuff. Man, but that sucks. That sucks. If you're lactose intolerant and you're forced to drink that, like, that fucking sucks. <laughs> I want, so like, I grew up drinking milk um, as a kid and I never really developed any real strong lactose intolerance. Um, I mean, I have what I think is probably average for most people, which is like, it get kind of gassy, but like, I've never experienced like lactose induced pain. I've always wondered if, like, the tolerance is something that you you gain by, like, drinking milk as a kid or not. What were your experiences with milk, specifically? Um, I had absolutely no problems with it. <laughs> um, I know, like, I, I... It's a joke that comes up a lot among, like, Asian conversation and Asian media, Asian American media, on how, like, our bodies reject white people food, and <laughs> we reject like dairy products because most uh western food has dairy product in it um but i've i've never had any trouble with with milk um yeah i've always been curious because i i, I don't have personal experiences with that kind of like those types of problems although i do <laughs> sometimes i do wonder maybe our Rejection of white people food is just the fact that white people food don't taste doesn't taste good i mean if you're lactose intolerant uh, I don't. I don't think it, it's about taste. I think it's just about genetics. Yeah. But is that I know a, genetic that a lot thing, of Asian people a... are? A lot of Asian people are lactose intolerant. So I I do wonder like what the percentage is in terms of like what are the chances that you would have it? Yeah, because the sample size of this books and boba podcast is zero. zero none of us have it. 
So <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful because I, I love dairy. Yeah. Um, and Japanese milk tastes so good. <laughs> Japanese ice cream, Japanese milk. I don't know what's in it. Probably like extra hormones, but it is so, so good. <laughs> Do you watch uh, Great British Break Off? I know I'm I going used on a to, tangent. But now, but now it's just Paul Hollywood. Well, they had a Japanese week challenge last oh, week. And no. it was terrible. Oh, no. It was the worst. No, British people cooking, uh, British people baking Japanese desserts. Oh, man, that sounds wrong. They didn't even like stir. The first challenge was make a meat bun. And everyone made like a Chinese style meat bun. It was terrible. It was horrible. Oh, my God. You had like a ton of people talking shit about matcha. It was just, just go online. Oh, my God. Every season, someone makes matcha. And <laughs> Paul, it was is it Paul Hollywood? It, it's someone. Uh, maybe it's Mary Berry. But there's always someone who hates matcha. And a contestant makes a matcha dessert. And they're like, oh, this wasn't good because it was matcha. And it's I'm like, that's racist. Yeah, it was just an episode full of just microaggressions. There's the 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 showstopper challenge was make a kawaii cake, which what the fuck is that? <laughs> and also they pronounced it kawaii, which means scary in Japanese. Um, so yeah, it's it's a total mess. Um, just go online, search GBBO Japanese Week, and just just bask in the hate. It's 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 it's, it's bad. I'm just saying it's called the British Bake Off, but most of the desserts they make are not British. Well, you know, colonization. That's how it yeah. works. Right. And also just all the all the good desserts were made by French people. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we digress. Yeah, uh, we're we're, we're going to go back to, uh, I guess, like the first chapter. It was very uh, impactful. It. it like honestly, like I was not expecting the milk twist at the end. How she I actually put- figured that out like halfway through when she started talking about like AIDS. How- yeah, well, when she- when she started talking about AIDS, like they started, you no, know, she started leaving like breadcrumbs. But about the time when she's talking about how like she was going to like how she wasn't going to the police um, about the murder. Like in my head, I was like, "Okay, this is like a revenge story." So how is she going to take revenge? Aha! She's probably going to give them AIDS. I think I figured yeah, that like out. When, when like three, four, she mentioned through. AIDS, that was when I was like, uh, "I was just like, okay, like it has to be related. Like, there's no way she's going on the spiel about how uh, her her." students are being grossed out by someone who has aids but they're not grossed out by murder yeah so i guess yeah yeah i mean that first chapter to me was the most striking it's probably one of my it's probably my like out of all the chapters the one that i um thought was written the best um because like you said it 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 was kind of a self-contained revenge story it was you know, it was in the it was in ways really thrilling, and like you had a clear protagonist and you had a clear like pair of antagonists, and the way that she uh, pretty much like does the mic drop to like say boom you're oh screwed, yeah it definitely was, was a mic drop moment yeah it was kind of satisfying as a revenge story right because you know in revenge stories you want to see justice for the wrong party and. Um, but in is this it case, justice, though? <laughs> I mean, 
that's up to the reader after you learn more. Like I still think it is um, in a way. I mean, one of the things you learned throughout, like from the rest of like the other six chapters is like, nobody really in this book is innocent. Everyone is kind of um, guilty of something or like not entirely um, sympathetic. Right. I think the only person that's entirely innocent was uh, Manami, the little girl that gets murdered. Yeah, even even uh, Mizuki, who is the um, who is like the class president who gets murdered later on, um, you find out that she's also not completely right in the head. So you you don't feel as bad about the murder as as like the four year old who gets murdered. Obviously, I mean, I think you still feel a little bad. I think she is. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that it, you don't feel as bad. <laughs> I mean, I feel like after Manami, um, Mizuki, the the class president, is probably the next, the person you probably could feel justified in feeling sympathetic for because, um, I mean, she becomes obsessed with like the the lunacy murders, right, and kind of like is looking into it, but not to the point of like, of like I don't think she was really trying to copycat. Um, no, I don't think so. I think she's just really like interested in, and I think that's natural for people to be interested in like things that are abnormal, right? Whenever there is a mass killing in the states, like people get really into like trying to figure out why or how or or what happened, right? Um, I think she, like, to to me, um, her character is collateral damage from the teachers from Moriguchi's revenge plot because. She gets inadvertently pulled into the bullying, and like we got to talk about the, the Werther, the 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 replacement teacher Werther, who like kind of oh god, what a drives tool. her also. Like she, the the reason she starts getting like murderous ideations is because he's like pissing her off to no end, right? And I think being around people who have done like actually put into action like murderous intent i think that affects you right that affects your your own moral judgment like saying okay if everyone around me is doing this kind of stuff i can do it too i feel like that's where her character was headed before she you know um gets well there was also herself. like like didn't she believe that she had split personality and or like she she and the lunacy girl were were like the same person because that's what that's what I thought it was. Like she believed that she actually did commit the lunacy murders, and for some reason, like she is mm. like there was something like very. I, I remember reading it and thinking, okay, like yeah, but that was from that was from mental Julia's perspective, though. I don't think you ever got that from her own perspective chapter. I don't know. Yeah, but wasn't that the twist though? Like when you're reading Shuya's perspective and. Um, and you find out that she is, you know, not so right in the head and not so much of a martyr, which is the name of her chapter. You know, she's not completely a model moral person. Hmm. I guess. But at the same time, I also don't trust Shuya's narrative neither. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean... This book is called Confessions because um, you're literally getting confessions from each uh, each important character. 
And, um, you know, I think there is an attempt to make uh, Naoki and Shuya, the, the two uh, the two middle school murderers, to be at least like I, I did not find them to be sympathetic characters, but it was like an attempt to show their perspective and to have them kind of justify their own actions, even though I think um, even then, the path I mean- to the path to murder was not justified. But I think even then, like both of those stories are written in similar ways, which is, yeah, you're, you're reading their justifications of why they committed murder and they give all these reasons. But at the end, those reasons aren't like to me, at least not enough to justify it. Right. Like those reasons added up, like, Naoki feeling inferior to Shuya, um, feeling like he deserves more recognition for his efforts. Like those by themselves aren't enough to justify him, like intentionally killing a four year old girl when he had the opportunity to not to, you know? And I think, like, with the revenge story, there's two ways she could have gone about it, right? One is to portray either of the boys as someone who was like overwhelmed by guilt and feeling like they need to atone and like living their life. Kind of like how they portrayed the the husband of Moriguchi who like decides to spend the rest of his life making up for his mistakes. Um, but the way that she wrote both of these boys characters, like I feel like, I mean, and, and it's, it's a complicated emotion, right? But like, yeah, they deserved like you, you kind of feel like they deserved what they had coming, like what the, their punishment, right? Like, um, even though that punishment involves like third party, like involves other people getting hurt, um, which is like, I don't know, like there is no clean revenge. Like, no, in definitely the world. there, there is no such thing as yeah. clean revenge, and I think that is like a very important theme of this book: how uh, revenge has a lot of collateral damage and there are serious consequences to it. And it questions whether or not like being a vigilante is the same as being a murderer. Um, And I hesitate to say if the, if Naoki and Shuya deserve the revenge that, that they were given um, because I like, I don't know. It's just like my moral code, I guess. Um, (laughs) I believe that they should have gone to trial. And um, even though the punishment may not have fit the crime, because you, you're told in the very beginning of the book that uh, the age of legal responsibility is 14. And because they committed the murders when they were 13, uh, their identities won't be revealed to the public and they won't be going to prison. They'll go to a juvenile correction facility and, uh, you know, they will probably get off with um, probation or some sort of um, definitely not like a prison sentence, not a death sentence. And after they are rehabilitated, they're, you know, they have a fresh start. They have a blank slate because their identities were never, never revealed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Obviously like they, they deserve punishment, but, but like to, 
go through this mental torture of whether or not they have AIDS and have their family and, uh, and like other parties be affected by it. Like, I'm not so sure if that, um, if that is exactly deserved, but then again, we're talking about revenge and there's no clean revenge. Well, also like Moriguchi isn't painted as a saint, right? She's not her husband. And even like the way that she, so that first chapter where she talks about her career and how she became a teacher, like she didn't want to be a teacher. She didn't want, want to help students, but she was someone who like fell into the job and decided to do it as best as she could. Right. She was very by the book. And like in a way, she's also kind of someone who is detached from like, um, I guess what you would call normal human emotions, like besides like loving her daughter and like her, her ex husband or her ex fiance, I guess. And like when you have that one thing taken away from you, she becomes like a mastermind of like, okay. I mean, from her perspective, these two boys deserve to suffer for what they've done right because they killed someone who was completely innocent and so she understands enough that if she were to turn them in they would literally get away with it right like nothing entirely bad would happen so she decides to punish them in a way that will hurt them the most yeah i mean the the thing is like her her revenge was to contaminate the milks that they're drinking with the blood of her ex-fiance who had AIDS. And, um, you know, like for her, it was like the transmission rate is low, but as long as it's not zero, then I think my revenge is complete. It wasn't but then just she that. finds out, but she was- finds out that her, her ex-fiance like thwarted her attempts. And I think her revenge was just so much worse because of that. I mean, it wasn't just that though. It was also, she knows that by, by calling the class out in this way, like she will get them to bully them, right? Like she was counting on the bullying as well. Like that was part of her revenge. Um, yeah. Yeah. Strategy as well. And like, like she's someone who like, as like, I guess a scientist understands systems, right? And how things work. So she was able to understand that like, okay, even if my husband or my ex-husband or ex-fiance, I guess, thwarted her, her plan, that fear would still drive them to like become paranoid. Right. And that's what happened with um, Naoki. And I think this is the interesting thing about his chapter is, okay, in chapter three, which is his sister reading his mother's diary, you get the sense that, oh, he's feeling like he's feeling immense guilt. He's feeling like, oh, he needs to stay away from his parents to like get, not get them infected. Maybe he like didn't mean to kill her. Right. But then in the very next chapter, you find out, yeah, he intentionally totally dis- like, decided to kill the little girl like and he's kind of a little prick and his like staying away isn't because of like goodwill or like fear for his family but it's all like super selfish delusional desires right yeah it's i think it's very clear that naoki and shuya are narcissistic um and you know there there's something just not right they don't feel guilt um and I don't know. I, I thought like the third chapter uh, from like Naoki's mother's perspective, I thought that was like, uh, I thought that was a pretty good chapter. I think that was, that was probably like my second favorite. 
Uh, <laughs> because, like, Naoki's mother, like, she's a terrible person. And she's, like, I have some serious, like, doubts about her parenting method, how she kind of smothers her child and, uh, you know, kind of spoils him and uh, believes that, you know, he he's so nice, he can't do anything wrong. And she writes all of these letters complaining about his homeroom teacher. And, you know, she thinks that Yuko Moriguchi can't commit to being a teacher because she's a single mother. And, you know, like, she she's just like, her her perspective on life is just not not what not aligns with mine like it it does not align with my my perspective on life and uh my at the same time though there are parents like that everywhere i no i'm not saying that this is just like a japanese thing i'm I'm just saying that her (laughs) perspective and just like how uh minato wrote her voice it was so distinct and um like, I really liked reading her trying to justify and trying to, like, even though she's, you know, even though she has, like, these terrible flaws, like, you can tell that she really loves her child and she is really trying to make this work. And um, it, it just keeps getting, it just keeps spiraling to a point where she she decides, like, hey, I'm going to murder my son. That's the only way you know, this is going to be resolved. And I really like the way it didn't just end on that note. It ends on the sister who, you know, is reading this diary and saying like, oh yeah, my mom is messed up. Like she thinks that, you know, we are supposed to be this ideal family and put too much pressure on us. And I really like how it closed that chapter on just, you know, because you're so deep into her mindset and then and then you're kind of told like yeah she's like an unreliable narrator and this is a very biased point of view and you can say that for every single chapter yeah i mean having parents who vicariously live like project their own failures onto their children is kind of it's a tale as old as time right in in any form of fiction um i I mean, part of this story, like, part of what made this book really interesting was, like, yeah, like, whenever something like this happens, like, the media circus, like, it's all about how could this stuff happen? Like, how could, how could, how can kids do such horrible things? It must be the fault of, like, the parents. their parents or the teachers or why didn't, why couldn't the teachers do anything? Why couldn't? Why didn't anyone say anything? Why didn't the students, like their classmates, say anything? And I think part of what part of what makes this um, such an interesting way to tell is you get the perspectives of the parents, the teachers, um, the classmates, and you also like and like Kane Minato also lays bare the limitations of those systems that are supposed to quote unquote prevent these things from happening, right? Teachers can't like teachers don't have the power to really do anything the government barely like like the government barely has any power because of the lack of consequences um parents don't see their children's objectively like it's a lot of like i guess if you're trying to ask and i guess like something that she might be trying to say here is 
in at the end of the day, like these two boys are also kind of messed up themselves, right? And like I don't know if the story explicitly states whether or not it's nature or nurture, but the way that I guess I read it is it she's leaning more towards nature than anything else, right? Yeah, I got that too. Like it's more nature than than nurture because you find out like later that um like in the very final chapter she's you know she's berating uh Shuya um and she's saying like how her ex-fiance Sakura Nomi, you know, he had a similar situation to Shuya and you know he didn't grow up with a moral code that most uh children are taught from their parents. And uh, he still ended up being the saint, this teacher who wanted to make other people's lives better, whereas Shuya went in the complete opposite direction. So it's her saying, like, you know, like, I don't think I don't think it's in you to be rehabilitated. Like, I don't think you have that ability. I don't think you have the the goodness in you to to make that transformation so i think it's definitely more nature than nurture but she definitely muddies the water enough for the readers to like <laughs> take time to to really think about it i thought her final revenge against she was maybe a little messed up but at the same time it does fit i mean oh man i did not expect that <laughs> i was like i was just i knew she was gonna come back but I, I just like did not expect a bomb being being planted and detonated somewhere else. And wow, yeah. And I guess you know, like we've mentioned before, that Moriguchi's character is not a hundred percent sympathetic in her own right. But this story is about her revenge against these two boys. And at the end of the day, I guess her revenge was successful because she pretty much like ruins these two boys right like one is in a an asylum i guess um and the other has lost his reason for living yeah um i i really like the passage where she said like the only regret that i have is mizuki being murdered by you uh, but every time I feel guilty about that, I remind myself that it's not my fault because you're the one who murdered her and you're the one who murdered my child. And, you know, like, like, I, why should I feel guilty about that? Yeah. And um, like, I mean, she's completely right. It's, you know, Shia's fault for for committing those murders on his own free will. But it was like a very chilling statement. You know, because it's it's very detached saying like my revenge, of course, it hurt other people, but it's not my fault. Yeah. And I feel like, OK, like between the two boys, like Naoki was kind of more of like he was just like a, a meathead. Right. He was just running on straight emotion fueled by his inferiority complex, whereas Shuya was just I mean, he's portrayed as like, would you say like a sociopath or a psychopath? Sociopath is more like it, right? Like someone who like has like zero empathy for anything else besides like. Wouldn't that be a psychopath though? Sociopath is someone who uh, can blend in completely mm. with with like the crowd and can be charming. But um, 
I don't know. He can be a mix of both. Like I feel like he my was definition though. Like, of he him was able is... to like he was able to charm the scientific community with his death pouch. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so he's he's a sociopath. I think he's definitely narcissistic. Yeah. Um, and you know, like a psychopath as well. You know, I feel I mean, like yeah. he doesn't have guilt. And his, I feel like his reason, like if you were to say which of the two are more sympathetic, I think now he's a little bit more sympathetic. Although I can't feel much sympathy for um, him because of like his intentional murderous actions. But like he wouldn't have been put in the situation without Shuya's like narcissism as well, right? Like I don't know. I think whereas like. The author spent some time trying to like build sympathy for Naoki before tearing it all down. Like, I don't think there was ever any sympathy for Shuya. Even when he was being bullied, I found it hard to feel sympathy for him, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the reader. Um, I think some readers will find Naoki and Shuya's position to be sympathetic up to a certain point. <laughs> Um, like for Naoki, like I did, I did feel bad that he was just kind of going through this mental breakdown and was, um, you know, he, like, I thought that he was being super hygienic and trying to stay away from his family because he cares about them. Um, and like, you think that he is guilt ridden because you don't find out that he intentionally murdered, um, murdered Manami like you think you you think that he it was like an accident he put her in the pool to um to make sure that there's like less suspicion yeah to cover and it up so yeah to cover it up so like you you do get the sense of like okay like he murdered a child but it was like it was an unfortunate like byproduct of of this grand plan by Shuya so there is a bit of sympathy, but then it gets teared down in the next chapter. And I did actually really appreciate it that because, you know, it, it was like, um, because it does bring the question of like nature versus nurture. And I, and I think, uh, Minato did a pretty good job. Um, I guess like kind of putting the reader through, through this like moral quandary. Of whether or not you should feel bad <laughs> for for a child murderer. Yeah. I mean, throughout this entire book, my thoughts were maybe this is just me as like uh, a mid-30s old man now. Like, man, kids are scary. I don't remember kids being this scary when I was a kid. Kids can be really cruel. Um, and I think that is like a big theme of like, oh, children, not all children come in like cookie cut uh innocent molds you know like yeah. every child is gonna be like it's gonna be different they're gonna need a different type of nurture and there are just some kids that you know you can't rehabilitate it it's just in their nature that they're gonna do bad things uh in terms of like what will be the catalyst for it obviously that like there could be blame put on um, on certain people um like with shuya's mom i don't think like there there was absolutely no reason for her to be abusive to him but 
But also, like, she's not the cause for him to be a child murderer. Yeah, I mean, his attachment to her, like, that's the driving force of his, like, evil villain nature, right? It was, like, he wants his mom to notice him. And he'll do anything for that to happen. And, I mean, what the story was what? Like, oh, he couldn't get her attention by being smart. So he'll get her attention by being evil. So she couldn't, she can't help but, like, pay attention run to, to him, him. Yeah. right like he, he thought that oh if he committed this murder then she'll like run to his side and like like essentially he wanted her to be like Naoki's mom right like in a sense it's I guess ironic that he desired the coddling like meddlesomeness of what Naoki had and it would have been like not funny that's not, not the right word but it would have been interesting to see if he had come into contact with Naoki's mom what his reactions would be right because like he would probably feel intense jealousy that he that Naoki this idiot that he looks down on has like this mom that's totally devoted to him right yeah <clears throat> in a sense it is like you do have a parallel going on here with uh Naoki's mother putting her son on a pedestal and then you have uh shuya who puts his mother on a pedestal saying that like she you know she is a doctor she you know wasn't able to achieve her dreams because of me and now that she you know is divorced she can and um you know like she she loves me i'm her only like one and only child like you know like he puts her on a pedestal and then he finds out that you know she got remarried and had another kid and she was very selfish yeah and yeah like i don't think her abuse and her abandonment uh is enough justification for him to become a murderer uh but it was a catalyst also where are all the dads in the story Right. I think yeah, that's the thing. Like I've read a couple of um couple of like Goodreads reviews and some people have mentioned like is this a Japanese thing with with the dad being not present? Like is it a Japanese thing for teachers to be held to a much stricter standard and single mothers <laughs> not being treated properly? And uh you know, all of those things are present in in like the West as well. But yeah. I think I think like the the level of prejudice might be more intense in in Japan. I mean, it's 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 an uh, it's a Japanese like anime trope that like parents don't exist in like teen stories, right? Um, I feel like um, Moriguchi says makes a comment in her monologue in the first chapter, saying that like the expectations placed on teachers by students have been warped by media. Because of like all this, you know, there's a lot of, you know, stories like mangas, like novels, um, anime that portrays relationship, close relationships between students and teachers, where the teacher would like spend time to go and solve the personal problems of each one of their students, um, kind of like maybe like GTO or whatever, right? And that that's unrealistic because there's no way a teacher could possibly take care of all of their students and do their jobs. And add that to the fact that like, yeah, like, like a female teacher meeting a male student in like private is like recipe for disaster, right? And vice versa. And so there's this like 
there's this expectation that what a teacher should be based on media consumption and like the reality of what a teacher is supposed to be doing, that there's a disconnect, but that disconnect creates friction, right? Part of Naoki's trauma, I guess, if you can call it, is like the fact that he thinks that his teacher cares more about his, her own daughter than him, which like, duh, that should be the case. Right. And also like, and also, and, and also like, that's ignorant of like the policy that like male teachers can't like female teachers can't meet with male students privately in public um, because of what happened before. Right. Things that happened before. I was, I was surprised by, um, like when Moriguchi said that she would get text messages from her students and they would say like, I want to die and like, no one loves me and like send these really personal text messages. And I thought it was kind of strange that her students had her cell phone number and that they were able to send these text messages. Cause I don't think, I don't think American teachers would have their, like would be giving out their contact information like that. Uh, perhaps I mean, their email, they'll probably get like stuff like that. But um, in terms of like calling up a teacher and asking them to meet them at night, um, I'm kind of skeptical about that. I mean, if you have their email, then you have their phone, right? And um, I don't think so. Sometimes like with, with club members too. Well, I mean, if you have their email, that means you can reach them on their phone because their phone can check email. Yeah, but it's not the same as like texting them or calling them up. I feel like I with email, like there, there's with an email, there's this expectation of like, oh, they'll get to it when they get to it. Like they don't have to answer back immediately. Not if you're a needy teen. I mean, I mean, I guess, but um, in terms <laughs> I mean, of like at the same the, time, like I think even in like in high school, I remember sometimes I would have the home numbers of some of my teachers, especially if they're my club advisors, because we had to reach them for like urgent things. Oh my god. Um, I mean, and you also have those teachers that are overly familiar with their students. Like, um, going back to Mr. Werther, who, like, I think is someone who bought into, like, the media portrayal of, like, a teacher being best friends with his students, like, and, like, and totally messing it up, right? Like, that guy was, like, also a narcissist, He was completely narcissistic, (laughs) yeah. Like, he, like, he didn't really care about his students he cares he cared more about his image yeah he wanted to be a cool teacher yeah he wanted to be the cool teacher he wanted you know like when he's shouting um outside saying it's okay like i stopped the bullies and you know it's safe for you to come back to school it's like you didn't do you didn't do anything (laughs) yeah i mean that was a total anime teacher move right that's something you would see in like those those um those that's something you would see on an anime that uh, someone would do, right? I mean, it's some something someone would do in real life, too. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think it's strictly something that you'll see in, in media. Uh, but in terms of, like, like, this book was a Japanese novel. It's meant for a Japanese audience. And uh, you're expected to kind of know um just how the education system is and um, I guess like the prejudice towards single mothers and uh, gender roles. Um, yeah. Cause like I, I read a lot of good rev- reviews where people were like, how come the dad is not there? Like it doesn't make sense that he didn't know what was going on in his own house. 
and um just you know like he like there's just like no way he would just not be in the house um and i and i guess like this is the same in america because we you know we do overwork and parents you know they try to provide for their kids and you know they're not as home as much but in in japan i think um japanese men like they tend to work longer hours i mean just japanese work culture in general is like one that like takes pride in working overtime or working late right like even japanese schooling like cram school right like that's a concept that doesn't exist in the states but is super common in you know japan taiwan korea um china like going to school after school and staying there till like 10, 11 p.m., right? Yeah, I mean, as someone who went to cram schools in America, I can, <laughs> it, it exists here, but it's definitely like within the Asian community here. Yeah. Um, and then like in terms of like gender roles, like you you get that sense from Naoki's mother. Uh, she's like, oh, an ideal Japanese house is the man goes to work. And he only has to worry about work and providing for the family, whereas everything else is on the wife, on the mother to take care of the children, take care of the house, take care of like bills and whatnot. Um, and a lot of American families, they they do have that ideal household belief, but I, I think it is like more of a Japanese thing culturally. Yeah, I mean... The image of the nuclear family is the is like what the poster child of like American values, even though in practice it doesn't really unless you're like rich upper middle class or like upper class, like it doesn't necessarily work that way. Um I feel like I mean part of it is also like if you're Jap like like another another aspect of like, you know, this book being like for Japanese audiences is like this um fascination with child murders right um because ja japan is statistically one of the safest countries in the entire world right i think they're the lowest per capita for murders i want to say like if not the lowest like one of the lowest and like but i think uh, moriguchi also mentions this in her monologue is like a lot of the high profile murders happens involving middle school children because of the age of age of um responsibility thing right yeah i remember it being a lot higher um the age of responsibility was i think 16 mm. and then they dropped it to 14 because so many kids were making murders yeah because yeah, <laughs> there were like so many disturbing crimes and uh there was just like a question of like like, how do you punish these children who technically are still developing their their brains and there is there is room for rehabilitation and like, should they be tried as adults? I mean, death penalty is still a thing in Japan, I, I believe. So yeah. there's a the question of that. Are you willing to condemn a child to to a death sentence? Um, But. You know, like America has a lot of child murders, child murders, too. Um, I remember there was like a really famous one back in the 80s. And um, 
I think the the murderer, she was like a 12-year-old girl who who like murdered her um her neighbor, I think, I believe. But like she because she was so young, um her identity was not released to the public when she reached age, or reached majority age. Uh she changed her name and, you know, she um, was anonymous for a while until someone took someone made the effort to hunt her down and uh, leak out her private information. Mm-hmm. And I remember there were a lot of think pieces saying like, "Oh, was that right?" Like, you know, she, you know, she went to a juvenile facility. She served her time, and you know, now she has a family of her own. Was it right for someone to leak out her information and uh, label her as a murderer? And I don't know, like, that is something that I, I don't think human beings can can judge. Um, I think there's, there's like, a very famous quote from this book. I, I put it on Books and Boba's Instagram, so let me, let me pull it up right here. Um, yeah, so there is a quote from Mizuki... And she says, I think we regular people may have forgotten a basic truth. We don't really have the right to judge anyone else. And I think that is very true. Um, In terms of like whether or not you can. Whether or not it's right to condemn children for for murders and and whether or not they deserve a second chance or whatnot it's yeah i mean i I don't don't think it's a thing that humans will ever get right (laughs) i mean i think in context that that quote was in regards to the bullying that's happening because of of um was in regards to the bullying that's happening right and i think that's something that like the second chapter right the martyr um focuses on is like the bullying that happened after um Moriguchi resigns as teacher and the fact that like there is also this mob mentality that that punishing someone feels good and if you can do it while being justified people will take that chance right like I think there's this innate nature that people feel that like okay as long as I'm punishing a bad person I can do whatever I want and it'll be right and I think, and, and I think but that easily, chapter, but like yeah. that mindset could easily be, be warped. <clears throat> and I think musically does mention this. That like at first you you feel good because you're punishing a bad person, but like if you continue, but like that thirst for for like punish punishing people, it's going to intensify, and sooner yeah. or later you will punish a good person. I think yeah. I mean, she mentions that like yeah, like feeling superior feels good. Right. And I mean, that's at its core kind of what happens to both Naoki and Shuya that drives them to like murder is this feeling of I want to feel superior to someone and I'm willing to do to I'm willing to do anything to feel that way. And I guess in that way, like, yeah, like. Maybe it is nature in, in the end, right? Like Shuya and Naoki are just two extremes of like what human nature can become um the nurture part definitely exasperates it but it doesn't cause it like people 
in general, like people in general want to feel like people feel good when they feel superior. I mean, isn't that just the, 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 the history of the world is like people feeling people imposing their superiority over people that they think are weaker than them. Yeah. I, th- I, I think that is like a pretty strong theme throughout this book yeah. about like superiority, sup- superiority and like nature versus nurture and like whether or not like human beings have the right to judge other human beings uh, because we do have the superiority complex. Um, yeah. Whereas like with justice, you're supposed to be unbiased, but how can you be unbiased when you're human? Lots of um, deep questions to ask <laughs> oneself when you're reading a very short novel. That's why I was very impressed because you have uh, you have five perspectives, I guess six if you count Naoki's sister. And I think for for a book where you know how the murder happened and know the murderers and pretty much like know the revenge plan for the most part. Um, there were just so many details that I did not expect and it really posed a lot of important questions. And I, I was overall really impressed by the book. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, um, it was definitely not a light read despite the length. Um, a lot of very dark scenes and very dark, um, concepts. Um, but I did appreciate that, um, uh, by the end of the book, Moriguchi's revenge was complete. <laughs> and uh, in a way, I think it, you know, it told a complete story about, you know, it, it told a complete story, which, which I appreciated. I read Penance. And <laughs> uh, while I did not like it as much as Confessions, I, I do recommend reading it if you did like this book. Because it yeah. does like impose a lot of the same, uh, like, similar questions um depending on like similar questions about revenge and atonement because actually the the second book is more about atonement mm. and you wonder like who is actually to blame and whether it's okay to blame children for something that they didn't really have control over um whereas like this book is you know you have two child murderers and penance is about four girls who witness a murder and um the the mother of the victim she like after like three years passes and the investigation is not going anywhere she tells the girls that she blames them and that they have until the statute of limitations expires uh to find the murderer or to to atone for like to atone for a murder that they didn't commit but you know, she feels like they're responsible for. Uh, so, yeah, like, I I think it's, like, a good con- companion piece to Confessions. Mm. Yeah. And it's also very short. <laughs> well, check that out if you have the time. If you enjoy- uh, Yeah, well, check that out if you enjoyed um, Confessions and want to check out more of Kane, Kanae Minato's work. Um, I'm kind of sad that those are the only two translated works that she has. Um yeah, she has so many books. It's um, it's kind of sad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like with like Convenience Store Women uh, by Sayaka Murata, that was like I I think that was her debut book. I'm not sure, but I I did mention in that episode that she had like ten books out, and that's the only one that's been translated. 
Actually, yeah. that's not true because her second translated book came out like last month. Okay, cool. Well, um, well, on that note, I guess um, that'll do it. Well, I guess that's a good place to um, wrap up our discussion of our October 2020 book club pick. Um, again, the book was Confessions by Kanae Minato. Also, thank you to everyone who commented in the Goodreads forums. Uh, just looking through, it looks like most people enjoyed the book. And um, like, I'm really glad that you guys all participated. So uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Rira, what are we reading for the month of November? We are reading Ignite the Stars by Maura Milan. It is a YA space opera. So very different from Confessions. <laughs> Excited to be getting going back to space. It's been a while since we uh, since we went to space, right? Yes. <laughs> I. When was the last space opera that we read? I think um, it was Empress of a Thousand Stars, or or was it Three Body Problem? Is Three Body Problem a space opera, though? Technically, no. Although they do go to space in like the third book, I want to say. Uh, yeah, I mean the last like space space opera would be Empress of a Thousand Skies by uh, Rhoda Beleza. Mm. Um, I'm like looking through our picks. Yeah, we haven't really touched on on like hard science fiction that's set in space. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a genre that. It's not my favorite genre, <laughs> uh, so I am curious as to like how I will like ignite the stars. But I like challenging myself, yeah. and um, I actually met Mora at a book signing, and she was very nice. And um, I think this is her debut book, so I am excited to dig into it. Well, you know, I love all things genre, so I'm very excited to um, head back. You're very, to you're the very sci-fi. You're more sci-fi <laughs> than I am, so I think you might like this book more than i do <laughs> well looking forward to it um and yeah that'll also do it for this episode of books and boba thank you all so much for joining us um, um hopefully the next time we see each other um things will be a little different it'll be different it's just <laughs> a matter of will it be good different or bad yeah. different um be on the lookout next week for our interview with chloe gong the author of these one the lights uh, we recorded this interview a couple months ago um but a it's couple coming... of weeks ago not months <laughs> time is hard um but yeah um her book uh these line delights is coming out soon so um check out her interview next week but um in the meantime stay safe read books and we'll see you later bye everyone bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah.